Hello and welcome to Diverse and Inclusive Leaders. This is the show where I speak with the most inspirational and thought-provoking leaders of today and unearth their unique stories of diversity and inclusion to help inspire, educate and motivate others to make the world a better place. Today, I am delighted to be joined by an incredible individual. Her name is Amazon Lafay, and she advises governments and companies all around the world through the lens of sports and the Asian LGBTQ plus experience. And that's when it comes to equality, diversity, inclusion, belonging. I felt privileged to meet with Amazon some many years ago when we were both speaking at a conference and I watched from afar as she told her personal story which resonated a huge amount with me and I know it will resonate a huge amount with all of you as well. So without further ado, Amazon, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Um, so wonderful to be here to share my story and work with you today. Thanks so much, Amazon. And you know, for those of our listeners who perhaps don't know as much about you uh, as I do, because I've been watching over the years all the phenomenal things that you've been doing, frankly, phenomenal. Tell us a little bit about your story and how you came to be where you are today. You know, it was really through my experience um, as a child being bullied. You know, I grew up in an all-white background, so I'm a transracial adoptee. And I was bullied consistently for the way I looked being Asian. And also the, the kids could see there was something different about me um, as well. So I got a lot of, you know, gay slurs and homophobia as well. And obviously very affected me as a child. And, you know, when you're a child, when you're discovering, you know, who you are in this world, you're also wanting to find a sense of community. So I went into sports very early on in life. Um, but I found sports to be a very hostile environment for an Asian kid because I saw very clearly that one, I was the only Asian kid in sports. And two, you know, I was then, you know, opened up to this stereotype of what it is to be Asian in sports. So I was picked on by my team, um, by my coaches, by other teams. So I encountered a terrible amount of racism and bullying in team sports. And I was actually pushed out of the sprinting team into a more individual sport because they just kind of felt that, you know, I was the Asian, slow Asian kid and, you know, by my structure, that stereotype that, you know, Asian kids are, are terrible at sports, that I was, you know, holding the team back. Um, and I went into, I really fell into bodybuilding at a very young age. I was six and it was really just finding a dumbbell around the house but I loved it because it was something that I chose and it was an individual sport but it also started to give me the confidence and self-worth to start loving who I was but also believing that I could be more than what people saw in me and I you know I always talk about the importance of sports you know even in business environments because you know marginalized groups and LGBTQ people do face a very high rates of mental health and you know you can learn so many unique skills through sports I started competing as a young um, a teenager in competitive bodybuilding but I still struggled inside with my sexuality because I never saw 
an Asian person in the media and I never saw an LGBTQ person. So for so many years, I believed that I was the only Asian who was LGBTQ in the world. And that kind of created a terrible amount of sadness inside of me. And, you know, for many Asian people, we never get to hear our stories. So we never believe if how we feel inside is something that is normal. Um, so I competed as a teenager. Um, I still encountered a terrible amount of bullying and racism and also sexism as well, because bodybuilding is a very masculine sport. And, you know, I started at a very young age. So I instantly went from kids sport to a very male dominated sport. So I saw instantly in terms of how the adult world perceived Asian women and how we are, we are very much sexualized in that way. But I just love the sport so much. And I, you know, it just started giving me the self-worth and confidence that I needed. Um, as a young adult, um, you know, I was homeless for a period of time. You know, I like, like many um, young adults and in their late teens, you know, you fall into the bad crowd. You're trying to find a sense of purpose. People take you in, but they may not necessarily not be the best kinds of people. Um, so I, end, you know, one thing led to another and I ended up homeless for a number of years in and out of shelters and feeling, you know, very low. It was probably my lowest point I had in my life. And I also saw how society treated those on the margins of the community and the lack of support network as well when you're you know a person of color when you're from the lgbtq community suffering from severe mental health and poverty and it was probably one of the hardest things i ever did of trying to pull myself out of homelessness and i really um you know support became my survival and it was through my lifetime experience of sport and learning these very unique skills in terms of you know mindset and concentration and other goal setting that I was able to tap into my athletes minds and pull myself out of homelessness I mean it was very hard and it took me years and I had a nervous breakdown um, by doing it but it, it it gave me a different perspective on life and I think you know all these different moments became the catalyst with the advocacy work that I see today where I advise governments all around the world and companies around, you know, diversity and inclu inclusion and belonging and the experience of Asian LGBTQ people and how we can cultivate, you know, safer environments within the workplace and within the society, because this is firsthand experience of my own backgrounds. Wow, Amazon. I, where do I start with what to say to that? Honestly, I personally don't have the LGBTQ plus lens or experience, but when it comes to adoption and when it comes to being, um, being East Asian, um, you know, and suffering with some of those struggles from depression to, to suicide, because of being different, I absolutely, I empathize massively. And, you know, as you were talking through your story then, I just, I could feel my heart like welling up 
so much because some of the astronomic things that you have achieved and the resilience that it has taken to get you from that place where you were to where you are now, which is ultimately advising governments, having written multiple books, you know, really shining a light on the story and being proud of that, you know, that takes some serious, serious resilience to do that. Um, you know, coming from the place that you're in, I just, you know, I absolutely, I take my hat off to you and everything that you have achieved. And, you know, it makes me think very much about intersectionality, ultimately. Um, you know, it makes me think a little of my own story as well, because I look at you when I saw you first speak for the first time, I thought, wow. I thought, wow, wow, and wow, because you just don't see many East Asians who are speaking out and speaking up. And when People say Asian or they use the terminology Bay, which for those that may not know means Black, Asian, minority, ethnic. Asian is still a, a very broad brush piece. Mm. It's, you know, and there just are not many role models that, you know, that look or maybe sound like you or, or I at all. It's almost... You know, we talk a lot and, you know, I think it is about raising each other up as minorities and, and, you know, all different aspects of intersectionality when it comes to diversity and inclusion and belonging. But I can't help but feel sometimes the East Asian experience is a little forgotten. You know, we're kind of in between somewhere when, when people are talking about white, they're talking about black, they're talking about brown. What about you know, what about the forgotten East Asians? You know, what's your take? And, and that, you know, has been one of the many struggles. And, you know, this is a discussion that I, I have when I'm speaking to business leaders or governments is that you have to look through an Eastern lens because our, our story and our experience is very specific. As soon as we're born, we're born into the invisible model minority race that has a proximity to whiteness. And there is no other community that has this stereotype. And we're pitted against other communities as we are the model minority race and you have to live up to this model minority race. But we're not a monolith group. And that creates this assumption that, you know, we're all going to get A+. plus. We're all going to be the doctors and the bankers. Social issues never happen to us. We never suffer from mental health issues we don't speak up but then that does cause such a problem within the Asian community and there's so little data around our community as well and and yes we're always seeming to be on this kind of outer sphere compared to other communities and you know it's like where is our group and I think the term BAME says so much because in British terminology, Asian only means South Asian. So then East Asians, we're just kind of clumped at the end of minority ethnic, assuming that we're just this monolith group clumped at the end. We're not even seen as people. And then that becomes an issue. If you can't see us, then how are you going to move forward by to support our community? 
And this is exactly why it is so important to have those role models or those real models, often as we like to call uh, to call people at Dial. You know, those individuals like yourself who are putting their heads bravely and boldly above the parapet and sharing their real truth, that lived experience. Um, I personally find they're nothing more heartbreaking than you know, volunteering in schools or speaking to, um, you know, underprivileged communities and having youngsters come up to me at the end of a session and say, but I don't see anyone who looks like me, therefore, how can I ever be in that position? Which is why it's so unbelievably important. And it just, you know, just breaks my heart that. What are your thoughts? It, it really does. And I, this is the reason why I do the work that I'm doing, because I think of when I was a child, I never saw myself. And I always use Britain as a perfect example because the East Asian community is seen to be very invisible here, if not at times completely irrelevant. And there's very little data either about our community. You turn on TV in the UK and you will never see an Asian, East Asian face, not even on the news where there would be a presumption, at least it would be in journalism, but we're not. And I think, you know, how do you assist East Asian kids in a society where they just never see themselves and they're never acknowledged as parts of society? And then how does that translate when they then take that first step into the workforce and then don't see themselves in a leadership role and then think, how am I ever going to climb the ladder because I have no executive sponsor and I just don't see myself in a leadership role because there are no leadership roles where I see myself. Absolutely, absolutely. And talk to me a little bit about, and I know this is going to sound a terribly naive question here, and probably people are tuning in thinking, hey, how come she knows nothing about the Chinese community? Well, um, as you know, Amazon, I was adopted by amazing amazing white British parents we always try to stay connected to our roots but you know of course you know such a lot about the East Asian community in the UK in the states around the world of course you're incredibly well known in Vietnam and East Asia itself but what are the kind of what are the stereotypes you know what are the what are the pieces that you experienced around the East Asian community in the UK and beyond because you're absolutely right there really there is not that why are there I'm not saying they need to be loud voices but why are there not voices in in that in our I should say community because I often feel like an imposter in in that community as well as I also feel um you know very British if that makes makes sense yeah. no I I, I, t I totally understand and I think around the work that I do and I think why do people keep choosing me is because there's no one else to choose from that is doing this kind of work and I think wait a second there are <laughs> billions of people in the world surely there's not another person but there were, we are so far and few between and this comes down to um, cultural differences in terms of you know conforming um, within our culture and not necessarily being, you know, an individual and speaking up, you know, issues around DNI, LGBTQ, you know, can be quite sensitive issues as well. And we're not used to these, you know, kind of 
topics in terms of having these conversations because of our cultural differences. But also as well, when you don't see yourself represented having these conversations, then you never see a role model or a possibility model of yourself either. I mean, I know from my own experience being Asian and from the LGBTQ community, you know, we, 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 we struggle as a community to come out because of these cultural references, but also for the fact that within the LGBTQ community, we are a very marginalized and very invisible group. There's no space that has been created for us. We don't get the platform that other communities get. And this feeds into the invisible model minority race stereotype that feeds into so many different parts of our life and parts of society. And also the media, you know, has to be held accountable in how it portrays the Asian community as a whole, and then how it portrays Asian women and Asian men, because it's continually pumping this stereotype. And so that if you've never met an Asian person before, you learn about us from the media and what stereotype that is. And then, you know, the UK is very specific because of the language that is used. You know, you can just say Asian. There's no need to say South Asian or East Asian. We can tell each other apart. Um, you know, you still reference the term Oriental here, which is a very offensive term for Asian people. During the Obama administration, he erased the word Negro and Oriental from all governmental documents because he realized how offensive and racist those terms are. And so we have to look at our, in each country, we have to look at the society, we have to look at the culture, and we have to look at the language that is used. And it comes down to just, you know, when you're filling out a governmental form, what kind of representation is on a governmental form? In the UK, governmental forms will say British Chinese, Chinese or other, making the assumption that the only East Asian people in the UK are Chinese. And if not, you're other, but there's no line. So then you're continually other, you're not even a person. And so then how do companies start with their DNI when society doesn't even see you as a person or a group or a community? Oh, it makes me sigh because the amount of times I, uh, you know, as a youngster, and I know you have filled out these forms. And it's weird because it takes a while to actually come to that almost that realization or that light bulb moment. Um, because I think it's, you know, it's that shame when you're younger and people hate talking about shame because the word itself just is an uncomfortable one. Right. Um, but it's almost that reinforcement of the being less than in society whilst at the same time, clearly, wow. I mean, you look at your track record and I don't think I've too, done too bad myself either, but you don't want to be that, you know, you don't want to be that victim. You don't want to be that person that is saying, Oh, Oh, but I'm a minority. You don't want to, to almost play that card in inverted commas, but it is, it's that reinforcement of, Oh, you know, what are you then? You're a, you're an other, 
box on the on on the form it's just a, a really not nice feeling um but to, to 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 revert back on one of your comments there where you mentioned about the the obama administration i'd love to get onto the subject of talking uh, to you around you know the, the the political state of the world at the moment but you mentioned there the offensive words of negro completely understandably and then also oriental and again this is going to sound terribly naive here but when I was younger I used to I had phases of being proud using the oriental word because I didn't know and you know what you say there about these cultural idiosyncratic details is so incredibly important is where one you know one one phrase one you know one um you know I, I, I'm so dyslexic, I can't think of the word. Um, but I can't, uh, you know, I can't think of a time where I didn't, I never liked the words chink thrown at me in the, in the playground. And it makes me, I'm flushing hot and cold now just thinking about actually saying that word because it makes me feel physically violated. But, um, you know, the word oriental to me, it was never, it was never a word that upset me at all. But being being cognizant of where we are culturally and what those things mean and why they are offensive is just so terribly important, whilst at the same time being open enough to be able to speak about them. Because the amount of business leaders I speak to who will say things like, oh, but I don't want to say anything because I'm worried that I'll be shot at. And I usually say something back like, well, you put your head above the parapet, as someone said to me, and you are going to get shot at. But at the end of the day, um, you know, don't worry so much about being vilified. Worry more about standing up for what is right, because when the heart is in the right place and there is the true care and empathy to want to learn more, that's really what that's really what makes that difference. Yes, and it's like if you don't know, never be afraid to ask the question and this is this whole you know conversation around dni and belonging and intersectionality allies are like but i'm so afraid what what if i say the wrong pronoun what if i call someone the wrong thing and i said i always say you know our neutral word for us asian just use asian we're all from asia <laughs> there's there's no need to say southeast asian or east a asian or south like we know <laughs> what you mean when, when you say that. And I think, you know, we have to really think about our terminology because when people say people of colour or POC or black and brown, it's very specific. And Asian people, we're not in that conversation. And colour for our community has always been used as something quite racist because we've been called for so many years yellow, yellow people. So, you know, colour has a different definition for us compared to other communities. So it's that cultural sensitivity. Um, and then I've had some leaders saying, well, what do I then call all of you? And he's like, well, you could just easily say Black, Asian, Latino. This, you know, we don't need to have this kind of monolith clump term that puts different communities that are completely unrelated to each other together. 
Totally. And again, out of curiosity, and I'm sounding, you know, again, I was talking about this actually on a, a, a dial lounge that we're doing, is I often feel like a fraud, is that the right word? Um, but Chinese, um, and this is probably, I'm hoping this doesn't offend anyone, but I'm going to say it anyway, but um you know, I used to say kind of I'm like yellow on the outside and white on the inside, like, you know, like a banana, you know, that is that is kind of how I, you know, rightly or wrongly, that's how I used to see myself when I was younger, really, or kind of still do to a degree now, my husband is more Chinese than I am. But he's well, a of, white American, because he speaks I, fluent Mandarin, sorry. Yeah, no, I was going to say, I, I you know, I, I understand that experience, because the adoptee experience is then completely different again from an Asian person that has grown up natively within an Asian community because our experiences that we're well I can speak to my own experience but the adoptees that I've met we're usually brought up white um, but then we look in the mirror and we see an Asian person and the way we navigate the world can be very different as well because we have a lived experience of, of our entire life within the white community and also that community not seeing our Asianness at all it's such an interesting subject a friend of mine who um when we are you know laughing and joking again I hope um, I'm not offending anyone here but I will say it and regardless I do think it's important to have those space spaces and those open conversations who who jokes around and says um you know they're like a coconut brown on the outside and white on the inside is it's ultimately um you know for them they feel like they are rejected by their own their own race because they are more have achieved certain levels within the hierarchy of organizations whereby their own community would then also reject them. And so it's a really complex, fascinating, multifaceted piece. Mm. It's kind of, you know, where do you, you know, where, where do you sit? Where is, where is home? Where is that sense of belonging then at that point in time? Yeah, it, it, it is. I mean, I think of myself when I'm back in Vietnam, that they see me very differently because I've reached a point in my life with what I've done that is completely unobtainable to a local Vietnamese person. And that's the privilege that I have owned because I grew up in the West. And this brings me back to intersectionality of then I leverage all these multiple identities I have of myself and the experiences that I've had throughout my life to find just a sense of belonging just within myself. Because I know in society, my sense of belonging is very dif different. I, I, and I think, you know, because I'm an ado adoptee and I, you know, if I'm in the Asian community, I have a very different sense of belonging there because I grew up in the West. In the LGBTQ community, my sense of belonging is very different because when I walk into an LGBTQ space, nine times out of 10, I'm the only Asian person there. You know, my sense of belonging is very different when I walk into a business meeting with a group of people, nine times out of 10, they will be all white men and I'll be the only woman in the meeting. And how do you feel when you go back to 
Vietnam? How do you feel in those different circumstances? And I ask this again, it's, you know, just so curious because I went and it, it makes me laugh. I went into a, a local Chinese supermarket recently and my husband, Costa, who speaks fluent Mandarin, um, with a, with a thick Beijing accent, apparently, not that I'd know. Um, and the lady in there was saying, oh, your wife speaks terrible Chinese. And I was just like, oh, <laughs> 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 oh God. And he was telling me this, obviously. Um, and I was just kind of, you know, buzzing. You know, I've kind of got used to it now. Um, and I just, you know, kind of have a little laugh and, I, you know, try and kind of shrug, shrug it off almost. But how do you feel when you go back to Vietnam versus how do you feel when you're in, say, Chinatown in the UK versus America and stuff? Sure. You know, because I go back to Vietnam every year, I've, I've found my sense of belonging there. Obviously, at first, it was very difficult because you can just, the way you carry yourself, the way you dress, the way you show up is just so different from a local. And they're a little bit confused by it as well because they 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 actually don't assume you're from the country i mean people they always ask me where are you from i'm like i'm from here <laughs> but the more i go back the more i see myself within the community in the sense that you know i always say that you can take the person out of the country but you can't take the country out of them there were just so many little innuendos and similarities of the way I carry myself that just seems so innate to local Vietnamese and local Vietnamese women, which surprised me because, you know, I've never, I spend time in Vietnam, but I've never lived in Viet Vietnam. You know, when I'm mixing on a business level with Vietnamese, obviously they treat me very differently because they know I'm a Viet Q, I'm an overseas. Um, Vietnamese person but you know Asia is heavily you know um, surrounded with um, you know status so you know I have a much higher status in the community than the average Vietnamese local there so I'm treated very differently you know we have a hierarchy system in Asia and in Asian cultures that you don't we don't necessarily have in the, the West. So what I've achieved in the West gives me that sense of status. So I'm treated very differently than if I were a local in Vietnam um, as, as well. But I also can, it, it grounds me because I can see very clearly how far I've, I've gone in life and what I've achieved. It's a very grounding experience for me. Amazon, I'd love to see more people like you on on TV and the media and the press, frankly. I was having this conversation with my husband the other night. We watched um, Bling Empire. I don't know if you've seen it. Have you? <laughs> I was like, do I go there? Sod it, I'm going there anyway. And, um, and he was like, hey, look. He was like, hey. You know Chinese people and I was like hmm yeah and I was like hang on a second <laughs> we watched one episode and after that he said oh my god in his American accent 
And he said, oh, my God, you know, this is, you know, I feel like I've lost an hour of my life. And I was like, oh. (laughs) And I was like, hang on a minute. I don't know that I can relate to any of these Asians either. Um, You know, and I get it. I know that Crazy Rich Asians and stuff like that was incredible. And I still haven't seen it, actually. I need to watch it. I loved it. You know, I watched every episode of Bing Empire. And what I really loved about it, if you strip away, obviously, you know, that this incredible wealth that they have and they're all on allowances, is the essence of what it is to be Asian in the culture and how family rules you so much with shame and failure that, you know, one of the um, characters, he's, I believe, a, a, you know, a, you know, a credible doctor and he's married. And, you know, they're still asking for permission from their parents to do certain things and they're still thinking. And, you know, you you would never, like, think to yourself before you do something with your husband, I need to ask permission from my parents if it's going to be okay. What what are they going to think? Oh, my gosh, maybe I can't do it because all this shame that, you know, it's like we saw that. And I think if you're going to watch Bling Empire, you know, really look to our culture within it because you learn so much in terms of how we're so rooted in family. And I think, I, you know, I have this very nice analogy when it comes to the LGBTQ coming out experience because people, businesses, business leaders and governments ask me all the time, you know, how, how do we create, you know, a safe and nurturing environment so Asian staff can come out? But it's like, you have to understand that for us, it's not coming out. As soon as we're born, it's about coming home. What are we continually doing to support the family in terms of studying well at school, you know, going to the right university, getting the really good job? Because at the end of the day, we're probably going to be the one that then starts, then looks at supporting our parents and grandparents. And and that came out very clearly in Bling Empire of, you know, even though that they're adults, they're still wanting approval from their parents with everything that they do. That is so incredibly interesting. And that's what I liked about Bling Empire because it really clearly showed the dynamic of children and their parents, even into adulthood. And even with, the, you know, there was a conversation about the wife who she had a child and she was thinking, you know, I don't really want another child. Let's just do surrogacy. And there was this whole conversation that you couldn't do surrogacy, the amount of shame that would be placed on the family. And we have to ask permission from the parents and then she would be ostracized. And it's like, if you're in the West, you don't even think of this. It wouldn't even come occur to you. You would just go and do it. So interesting. I... See, I've got a good excuse now to watch the rest of it because I watched the first one and I thought, oh, this guy's interesting. We kind of, you know, you enter the series through the lens of this chap and I thought, I can't remember his name now, but I thought, um, I thought, oh, wow. And there this... isn't a adoptee in it. And it yeah, that's the guy. Yeah, yeah that's the guy. guy. He doesn't really have the money who's kind of befriended all the rich and how that relationship and dynamic works. And then there's... Then within that, there's another kind of dynamic of an, an Asian woman who has broken away, which is highly unusual because her parents still live in Asia, but she hasn't spoken to her father for 10 years. And that kind of dynamic, because that's very unusual in an Asian household that you would break away from your parents like that. Um, and then, you know, with 
another young guy who's on an allowance, but how, you know, the family rules every move he does. And it's like, you know, we just don't have those dynamics in the West. And I think when you're thinking about DNI and belonging, you really have to look at the heart of our culture and you really have to go in with an Eastern lens as to why there's just such a difficulty within our culture to do certain things. And as you say, to put your head above water and speak. Absolutely fascinating. And you know, I think it's, it's when you say things like that, it makes me feel so proud to be Asian. Um, and I wonder sometimes whether that is where it's from. You know, my mum and dad, and people often say, oh, you're, you're real mum and dad. And I say, absolutely. I get really cross. I remember, you know, as a youngster getting really cross about it. I was like, mum and dad are my mum and dad. Duh, that's my mum and dad. I love my mum and dad so much. You know, they're the ones who, um, you know, have nurtured my brother and I over the years. I would do anything for them. I love them so much. Um, you know, but it is that... Um, I sometimes wonder, have I got that from my DNA and from the stereotype? Because actually, um, you know, for me, one of the most, well, the most important thing in the world is to look after family and to look after mum and dad and my brother and everything like that. doesn't matter to me that it's, uh, you know, what's, what's DNA in the equation, hey? That's, all, that's what I kind of think. <laughs> um, but anyway, Amazon, I'm, I'm conscious that I could speak to you for ever and a day I just I adore you I adore you without sounding too full on there <laughs> um, but talk to me just on a final note you know a little bit about um, you know kind of your thoughts around the you know the political uh, situation at the moment because I know that you did just some amazing work um, you know back with the Biden administration and you know, I would just love to see more individuals like yourself getting um, and being involved in some of these decisions when it comes to ultimately running the countries for, um, you know, for good and for the future generations of leaders. Sure. I mean, you know, when I think of, I mean, we're in a different time now. Obviously, you have Biden-Harris administration. You have the first female VP who happens to be biracial, half Asian, half Black, and I think it really makes you know business leaders take a step back and you know put themselves in check of you know their own companies of you know how many female leaders do we have in our company who are from minority backgrounds and what can we do better to cultivate you know both DNI and belonging and creating that path to leader leadership. Um, you know the Asian community has had a very difficult time throughout the pandemic with the COVID racism, particularly through the Trump administration in terms of, you know, when you target one group and then, you know, name a virus to that group, you're going to have retaliation. And I think, you know, we never saw our, our stories globally like this. Unfortunately, they weren't the right stories, but we came together and globally we were sharing our stories and I think you know now we have an issue with you know elderly um, Asian people being targeted and I think you know we need to step up as community leaders and you know this is why I do the work that I do with business leaders and governments because you have to have you have to be in the room with decision makers who can change hearts and minds and who can change policies you know I think the UK is in a, in a very interesting position with the amount of Hong Kong people. We have like 3 million that could potentially 
come to the UK and supposedly already 300,000 have signed up, you know, next year, I think 600,000 have potentially signed to come. So the face of the UK is rapidly changing, but then we need to think, is there a support network for a massive surge in the Asian community to come to a country? And we have to think of, you know, the cultural sensitivities, we need to think of, you know, so many policies that we might change. Companies need to think about, you know, what are they doing to cultivate safe and nurturing environments for, you know, an influx of potentially new Asian employees who have spent all their life in Asia and who may also have, you know, some language barriers and just, a, you know, obviously a different outlook um, in, in, in life. And, you know, this is why I continually have these discussions because we need to have them now not when we're, you know, a couple of years down the track where we think, oh my gosh, it's too late now. What, what was that discussion that we should have had? So well said, so well said. Before we run out of time, I know you've probably checked out some of the podcasts before, so you know what is coming and that is lightning round. Uh, I'm going to ask just a couple of questions. I'm going to give you 30 seconds to answer each. Yes, okay. Hardest one first, obviously. Um, and that is, what is your secret to success, Amazon? You know, my secret to success is being resilient. You must have a growth mindset because in an ever-changing world, you have to continually pivot. Um, you can't be afraid to make mistakes and every mistake is a learning experience and don't be afraid to speak up I mean when I think about why I was so successful it came down to one very simple ingredient of continually sharing my story and from this story at some point it will resonate with the leaders that I had in the room to shift and change hearts and minds to start looking at you know communities differently Great answer. Leadership of the future, I absolutely believe, is about the heart. I'm sure people will say, oh, but that sounds so cheesy. But it absolutely is. And it's the one thing that cannot be emulated at this point in time. Who knows, Alexa in the future. But you know what I mean? Yes. It is emotional intelligence, hearts, minds, the future. And what about if you could go back in time, Amazon, and give the young you some advice what would you say to yourself or perhaps someone who's in a similar circumstance and wants to be where you are now you know the society always tells us we're not enough I would go back and say two things you know you are enough and you've always been enough and you have to keep believing that regardless of what anyone tells you and two thank you for believing in me because there are times and I think particularly for me I, I just didn't have anyone that believed in my dreams and in me personally so it's like you have to step up for yourself and they're going to be very difficult times when you you're the only person in the world that's going to believe and drive your dreams and your vision and I think particularly when it comes to DNI and belonging work because you know you may be a business leader and your company may have this pushback but you have to believe this is the right thing and you have to drive this. And finally, for any athletes or future athletes that are tuning in, um, and I, albeit I'm 
not as healthy as I used to be, but did use to powerlift back in the day. Um, what would <laughs> what would you say by way of a nugget of wisdom to give some advice and courage to those who are who are competing? Because ultimately, as you said earlier, right at the beginning of the podcast, you know, business sports the two are absolutely intrinsically aligned. Yeah, no, no, they they are. And, you know, you will never be successful if you keep hiding bits of yourself. You know, you have to show up as your full self and, you know, bring your whole self to work if that's in business or in sports to be successful. And, you know, I hope by sharing my story, it prompts other Asian people or other LGBTQ people to live openly out in sports. And it's, you know, it's important to find a support network because if you're going to take that first step in terms of telling your teammates or telling your coach, you know, it starts first with accepting and loving yourself. And then second, find someone you can trust who you can invite in and share your story. And then that provides a support network. If you then have to go to a coach or if you then have to tell your team members, or if you then have to eventually, you know, tell a relative, Amazon, it has been an absolute joy and a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much. You've inspired me a huge amount, and I know you'll have inspired so many people who have been listening as well. Thank you very much. It's been such a pleasure to speak to you today and have you on the show. (laughs) Amazon, you've been an absolute superstar. And for everyone who is tuning in or thinking, hey, I've missed some of that podcast, don't worry, because you can check it out again. And you can listen on repeat if you wish. Uh, We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast channels. You can also check us out on the show notes with the key learning points as well from the incredible Amazon from today at www.dialglobal.org forward slash podcast. I'd also encourage you to check out Amazon's books. I'd check out her website as well. You can connect with her on LinkedIn. She is a game changer. So next time you're thinking about bringing someone in to come and speak at your organization, look no further. Um, Shameless plug, I know, but my goodness, you won't be disappointed. My name is Layla McKenzie Dallas, and you've been listening to the Diverse and Inclusive Leaders podcast show. We're with you every week. Take care and see you again very soon.